For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Early voting has already begun in Oklahoma, and we had an unexpected endorsement earlier this week. Outgoing Republican Oklahoma County Sheriff P.D. Taylor is endorsing Democratic candidate Waylon Cubitt, who is running against Tommy Johnson, who beat Taylor in the primary. Neva, were you surprised by this endorsement? Well, I was surprised by not only the endorsement, but the timing. Uh, As you say, a lot of absentee ballots have already uh, come in to the election board. Uh, People, if you look at some of the polls, would suggest that even in this race, a significant number of folks have already made up their mind. So you've got this late endorsement. The question is, can they get the word out? even adequately to where Republicans, if they believe, uh, if the sheriff believes his endorsement might influence them, he's got uh, he's got that hurdle to overcome as well. And I think we have to remember, this has been a long, um, a long, hard fought race. And uh, Sheriff Taylor lost in a runoff to uh, uh, to Tommy Johnson. It was a by 60 percent of the vote Johnson mm-hmm. won. So it was a significant win. And I think um, I think the issue that he uh, advanced as why he was making the endorsement of um, uh, of Wayland Cubitt is the fact that he felt that the sheriff's office was no place for on-the-job training. But the issue of experience has been really at the core. It's been the main issue of this entire general election campaign. So he really wasn't infusing a new idea or something uh, new into the equation. I think he was just making his own position known, perhaps to influence those who uh, were his supporters who had not made up their mind whether they were even going to vote at all. Um, and, and if there's a segment of that Republican bloc, then perhaps uh, perhaps his endorsement uh, will factor in uh, to the overall to the overall results next Tuesday. Ryan, could this help out, Cubit? Oh, absolutely. I think I think it can help him out. I think, yeah, as Neva said, it's a matter of being able to get that message out to voters. Uh, I mean, r- right now that's that's compounded by the difficulty of that's compounded by the fact that Oklahoma County is largely shut down without power. A lot of folks don't have Internet. It's very difficult to go out and knock doors. Uh, so communicating that message to voters at this late stage, especially when a lot of those voters, as Neva also mentioned, have already cast their votes. Mm-hmm. You know, this morning I woke up uh, to Twitter feed, you know, we tape on Thursday mornings. Uh, you know, I, I wake up to my Twitter feed, and I'm I'm looking at pictures of the Oklahoma County early voting line with cars, uh, you know, just you know, going way down the road, uh, you know, waiting to get in their spot for early voting. So, it's going to be critical. It's not something that you can wait until Tuesday to get that information out. But I do think it's a powerful endorsement. Anytime you have a Republican endorsing a Democrat or a Democrat endorsing a Republican. Uh, I think that that counterintuitive endorsement um, you know, carries a lot of weight with it, especially whenever it's it's built around the idea of experience. And you know, the um, the position of sheriff really, most Oklahomans I think would tell you shouldn't be a partisan position. It, it's it's an administrative position. It's a law and order position. It shouldn't be seen through the lens of party politics. And so when Wayland Cuba is able to say, I have the outgoing Republican sheriff saying that. Uh, he thinks that I'm the most experienced and best ready to take over on day one. I think there's a lot of weight to that. And then I think whenever you see, you know, Tommy Johnson, uh, both in the debate has become you know more of a partisan figure there. I mean, he's, uh, you know, latched onto the idea of, of, 
uh, ICE officers being in the county jails uh, doing ICE detainers. Wayland Cubitt's pushed back on that as a policy matter. Uh, and now we've seen, you know, Tommy Johnson apparently is speaking at an event with the, the couple that was uh, you know, prosecute or being prosecuted for waving uh, assault rifles at protesters uh, at this you know, highly partisan event. Tommy Johnson's on the list of folks to speak there. So I think that if Waylon Cubitt can tee this up as a I'm the nonpartisan experienced candidate in this race and Tommy Johnson is the partisan candidate in this race, that could be powerful. It's just a matter of will voters be able to hear that? I think the bottom line, though, when you talk about partisan or nonpartisan, it is a partisan race. Uh, it is a courthouse race. It is uh, uh, the Republican versus the Democrat. And I think uh, what we've seen that really uh, reflects that is uh, recent poll numbers that indicate that uh, the Republican um, is uh, leading, at least at this point, in, in, in those polls that have been released by double-digit uh, numbers. So whether those are accurate or not, I think what we see is a partisan race. Uh, we'll see that reflected by what happens down ballot, and I think uh, it will be very competitive on Tuesday. Now, I know voters are interested in getting your thoughts on the two state questions on this year's ballot. Let's start with state question 805, to remove sentence enhancements against nonviolent offenders. Ryan, your thoughts on this measure? Yeah, I think that this is, uh, without a doubt, the most criminal, the most important criminal justice reform measure that voters anywhere in the nation are going to be able to cast their ballots on. I mean, there are there are a number around the country, uh, but you know, national leaders in the criminal justice reform movement will tell you that Oklahoma is ground zero for the most important reform that voters are considering. Um, you're talking about saving millions of dollars, keeping hundreds and thousands of people from needlessly uh, getting trapped up into the criminal justice system. Um, this is, you know, I think Oklahomans are, are just sick and tired of hearing stories like the one that I've talked about on here recently of, of a young man who is now in prison for seven years uh, for having 1.3 ounces of marijuana. And the only reason that he's he took that seven-year plea deal is because the DAs had enormous leverage to be able to stack prior nonviolent convictions against him so that he would have been facing, you know, 20 something years if he'd gone to trial. So you take seven and he's sitting in seven. He's sitting in prison right now for 1.3 ounces of marijuana. I think most Oklahomans are ridiculous, are tired of hearing ridiculous stories like that. And we've got to realize that if we could incarcerate our way to public safety in Oklahoma, if we could make our states state safer by putting people in prison, man, we would be there by now. We would because we, we, we incarcerate more people than anyone in the world. We would be there by now. What we're doing isn't working. The folks that are fighting against 805 are essentially fighting for the status quo. And the status quo isn't serving us. It's bankrupting us. It's destroying communities. And I think Oklahomans are ready for, for the next chapter in criminal justice reform. And that's state question 805. Ne I'm voting yes. I hope they'll join me. Neva. Well, I think 805 is is one of these issues that, uh, that, by and large, when voters look at it, if they haven't had any background or followed it at all, they're trying to figure out, you know, kind of which uh, which which direction because there's clearly a two you know two kind of stark contrasts on this. The supporters, as you say, Ryan, uh, uh, talk about reducing the state's high imprisonment rate, saving taxpayer dollars, uh, that uh, the uh, the uh, habitual offender laws are archaic, uh, that they need to be 
kind of brought up to uh, brought up to date, uh, like surrounding states. But the opponents of the measure also have a case that they're trying to make, and that is that they believe that 805 would lead to higher crime rates. That the legislature would not be able to modify the list of crimes that uh, 805 considers violent, and also the fact that prosecutors would be forced to treat. Uh, repeat drunk drivers or domestic abusers as nonviolent criminals. So there's a there's a stark contrast and there's and there's a real interesting uh, mix on the folks that are publicly out in favor of 805. And as you said, the yes 805 is uh, an effort of the Oklahomans for criminal justice reform. And you have the ACLU and, and the conservative uh, uh, leaning uh, think tank, uh, the Oklahoma uh, Council on Public Affairs, several former governors and, and uh, high-profile people across the board. And on the opposing side, we have certainly uh, uh, the, both Governor Stitt and former Governor Frank Keating, who have uh, you know kind of led the charge uh, in opposition, as well as the District Attorneys Association uh, and the Coalition Against Deme- uh, Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. So you have this united, uh, kind of united efforts on both sides. It would appear that when you look at uh, the level of, of activity from a campaign standpoint, the money uh, and the effort uh, certainly is on the yes on 805 side. And we haven't seen what, you know, where that money's coming from and how much is being spent on both sides yet. Those reports will be out soon. But I think that uh, when you have just the the uh, the amount of uh, activity as well as the, the level of television advertising and what is going on on the uh, on the yes side, I mean, it makes it a very challenging task for these folks on the no side to get their message out. So will there be this last minute surge of, of um, uh, intense activity on the no side in the closing stretch here the last weekend leading up to the uh, to the election? Maybe, but we've not seen it yet. And, you know, let's be fair on the on the on the pro side, on the 805 side, yes, uh, they have been active for a year uh, mm-hmm. and involved in this campaign, where the no side just really engaged in the past month. And I think that may be uh, ultimately a significant factor in, in what happens on Tuesday. A state question 814 also amends the state constitution, changing the amount of money going into the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust from 75% to 25%. The excess money would go to the legislature to fund the expansion of Medicaid and other Medicaid expenses. Neva, what do you think of State Question 814? Well, I think this one's got even, uh, it's got less attention than, um, (laughs) you know, many state questions in the past. I mean, there's just, there's not much of a a campaign uh, out there to really engage the voters in looking at the information. And again, you you have supporters of of the question. Uh, making their case, they believe that uh, uh, you know Medicaid expansion that the, that that that's going to be a significant uh, impact on the budget coming up, and this this effort to uh, basically flip the for, uh, flip how the money comes into TSET, that the the seventy five percent going to the legislature as opposed to twenty five percent would give them would give additional dollars that would go to help offset the uh, monies that are going to be need, needed for Medicaid expansion. You know, the opponents obviously make the case that they believe it's harmful to improving public health. They don't believe that uh, you should divert 
funding from a state agency uh, that already operates uh, health and, and, and prevention programs. So you've got these competing lighthouses and, and you've got a lot of folks that just can't quite, I think, cut through the fog and figure out is it a, is it a good thing or a bad thing to talk about what this uh, what this mix is going to be, and I think on the on the side of trying to make the case that the dollars are needed, um, you know, one of the things that's not been infused very significantly into the conversation is the fact that uh, with Medicaid expansion, and if the legislature doesn't come up with the money, you know, from the existing pool that they'll have, uh, will they be forced to look at raising taxes, which we know Republicans and the governor have made it pretty clear that uh, that's not something that's going to be on the table as far as they're concerned. Ryan. Yeah, I think that uh, this this may be the most confusing state question for voters uh, in, in recent memory. Um, the the lack of information on both sides of this and, until the very end. I, you know, right before my power went out earlier this week, I started seeing some TV ads, uh, you know, supporting the need for TSET to have this money, the success that TSET has had with tobacco cessation uh, and their other healthy Oklahoma initiatives, um, and why they shouldn't, and 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 you know, very pointedly pointing out why they shouldn't trust, why Oklahoma voters shouldn't trust the legislature with this money. Uh, that TSET's been doing a great job with it. So why give it to the legislature to spend it however the legislature sees fit? Um, Attorney General Drew Edmondson, or former Attorney General Drew Edmondson, uh, my good friend has been uh, all over the news and you know any earned media that he can get talking about how this isn't anything new. Uh, that right after the tobacco settlement uh, took place, uh, there was a there was a secondary fight, not with the tobacco companies, but within the state of Oklahoma among the legislature uh, and the attorney general's office over where that money was going to go. And Oklahoma took the very unique approach in locking this into a constitutional reserve fund uh, to use the interest for healthy Oklahoma initiatives. And you know that was a legislative battle in and of itself. And so you know, kind of what we're seeing now is the uh, the the uh, the resurrection of that old fight where the legislature wants to have some of this money, as the attorney general, former attorney general Edmondson has pointed out, even if they get this money uh, with the passage of state question 814, the legislature is still going to come up short in their total funding needs for Medicaid expansion. Um, and so you're you're really seeing, I think, a Rob Peter to pay Paul situation here. Uh, you know, I'm with the, the with the former attorney general. I'll be uh, opposing this this measure, but you know, I think that a lot of Oklahomans are going to walk into the ballot box. You know, whether that's early voting, whether that's those folks that already voted absentee or on Tuesday, and they're going to see this. And I, I suspect a lot of them are going to see it for the first time, uh, and they're going to have to make a decision right then and there, based on a, a pretty. Uh, you know, these these state questions are supposed to be written so that folks can read them and understand them. Uh, but you know, I think that a lot of Oklahomans are going to read this one and not really understand uh, the context of, of what's going on here or the implications of voting yes or no. Governor Stitt says he won't appeal a court decision on tribal gaming. A district judge found the compacts between the state and the tribes did indeed automatically renew on January 1st. Stitt had tried to renegotiate the compacts and even entered into new ones with four tribes, which have since been declared invalid by the courts. Neva, what are the next steps for Governor? Well, I think, uh, first of all, what we see is uh, basically the governor's cutting his losses on this battle, which he's been unsuccessful uh, uh, after a series of attempts to uh, uh, to go down this road. And the court's uh, clearly uh, saying that uh, 
uh, that, uh, that they felt like that the compacts did automatically renew. You have a situation where I think looking at the upcoming legislature, looking at uh, uh, a possible re-election campaign down the down the road, you're looking at how to kind of overhaul your um, kind of overhaul the way you're going to move forward and what your kind of a legislative agenda is going to be. I think the fact that the McGirt is such a, a significant question that is going to this decision and the impact uh, that it's going to have for the state to deal with. I mean. It, it it puts the governor and the tribes and everyone in a position of needing to uh, turn a new page and and be able to get back to the table and begin to work through some of these uh, some of these big questions so um, how that came about and whether as the governor has uh, begun to uh, make changes in his executive team and we've got new faces coming in and and a lot of things uh, going on um, I think the the good news is the uh, at least now this is off the table. There won't be an appeal, uh, and the the the, um, the governor can move forward. The tribes can move forward, and hopefully, in some in in some short order, they can find a way to um, kind of. Uh, reinvigorate a conversation that would be important for all Oklahomans, and in terms of the issues that uh, that they all care about. Ryan, finally. Finally, I think that the governor has has recognized that he has been pushing a, a losing proposition here for for uh, a very long time now. And you know, as uh, uh, the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin Jr., has said that, uh, irrespective of the the hundreds of thousands of, of dollars at least that uh, that everybody has uh, spent, if if not more than that, uh, fighting uh, this this effort by the governor to. Uh, uh, to negate the renewal of the compacts at the beginning of 2020, which, you know, just as an aside, January 1 of 2020 seems like we're talking about something <laughs> 30 years ago in ancient history. Talk about the before times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the time before the, yeah, the, 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 the compacts before time. I mean, it, here we are. Um, but way back in January 1 of 2020, when those things automatically renewed and the governor contested it and, and you know, even began signaling before January of 2020 that he was going to contest their automatic renewal, um, that the biggest loss here isn't, isn't money. Uh, the biggest loss has been uh, the relationship between the state of Oklahoma uh, and the various sovereign tribal governments uh, that, that share territory with the state of Oklahoma. And we're going to have to see now a process of beginning to heal those divides and uh, recognizing that what we what we have enjoyed for the last you know, 20 years or so in Oklahoma and really enjoyed uh, has been the result of, of good faith working relationships built on trust uh, and mutual respect between the state of Oklahoma and various tribal governments. That has to be repaired now. Um, I, I'm wondering, and we don't know this for sure, but I'm wondering how much of this decision can be credited to the new Secretary of Native American Affairs, Brian Bingman, mm-hmm. uh, that, that Governor Stitt recently brought on board? Um, and and if, if Governor Stitt maybe is finally listening to somebody in his cabinet, if yeah, I wonder if Secretary Bingman had a role in convincing the governor that it was time to just, just, just stop, that there was no winning here, and that it was time to move forward and repair these relationships. Because that's what that's what's going to happen right now, and that's really what's in the best interest of all Oklahomans uh, and and the tribes themselves. I, th- I think to add to the the um, 
idea that Brian Bingman had had a role potentially in in all of those conversations. I think when we look at the governor's new chief chief of staff, Bon Payne, I mean, here's someone who has uh, a very strong uh, business acumen. He understands and has strong community relationships. And when the governor announced his uh, um, decision to make Bon Payne his new chief of staff, he said that he would be a key to building bridges in the capital and in the public. So here's someone I think that also, um, you know, both of these uh, gentlemen are going to uh, be significant players uh, in the executive team with the governor. And clearly, uh, those types of statements by the governor seem to indicate that they're, uh, it's it's not necessarily the olive branch, but it is an attempt to, uh, uh, to kind Kind of uh, move forward and try to uh, and try to regain some trust and build some relationships that are absolutely, as you say, Ryan, they're essential for Oklahoma to be able to address the significant challenges that we have in front of us. Well, and it's it's going to be even more essential. You know, proof is going to be in the pudding here because you know now we've set this aside. The state's continuing conversations with tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma in the wake of the Supreme Court's McGirt decision uh, are, could be as, if not more consequential than these tribal gaming compact uh, conversations. So, you know, having uh, those are going to be very hard, uh, I think, in many instances. And, you know, recognizing, I think it, they will go much better if everybody can walk to that uh, and sit down at that table and know that everyone's there in good faith. The Oklahoma City Council is delaying the decision on whether to appeal a court decision finding its ban on panhandling was unconstitutional. Because of a court deadline, the council has less than a month to decide. Ryan, do you think it's going to be appealed? You know, I'm still, uh, even though I'm no longer with the ACLU of Oklahoma, I'm still counsel. uh, I'm still a counsel of record on this case. So I'm going to be careful and and reserved in in what what I'll say here. Um, except that the decision that came out of the Tenth Circuit, uh, out of a three-judge panel, was unanimous. I mean, it was and it was a strong it was a strong decision. I don't think that the uh, the city has you know much room to to maneuver here in terms of moving forward with with their judicial path. Uh, I think it, I think it's time to recognize that they were wrong. Uh, that they've known that they were wrong for a very long time. Uh, the their city their very own city attorney. Uh, former councilman Ed Shadid, uh, I, even even myself uh, standing in front of the city council, uh, telling them then that what they were uh, pursuing with their anti-panhandling ordinance um, was a violation of the First Amendment. Um, you know, they knew what they were doing, and it took the a unanimous three-judge panel on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals to finally tell them that. I think that they just need. I think that they need to live with that result. Uh, I think that. Um, uh, and ultimately I, 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 there's, there is, it is extraordinarily unlikely, uh, that the United States Supreme court would even take this case. Uh, and I think that it is even, uh, less likely than that, that the Supreme court would modify in any way what the 10th circuit decided. Neva. Well, I think, uh, I, I think you're right in terms of the, it's time for the council to make their decision. And I think looking at, oh, what, uh, you know, where they are right now with this uh, 10th Circuit um, appeals panel being unanimous, the three judges, the fact that uh, uh, the city has already uh, had a tremendous 
legal expense uh, over time, not only the legal staff have, at City Hall, but the fact that the city has also paid $230,000 in outside legal costs. So that bill would just continue to climb. So, and I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, the, the, the whole point of, is the Supreme Court likely to take up a case like this? I mean, the Supreme Court only takes up about 80 cases out of seven or 8,000 annual requests to the high court. So that makes it a very daunting uh, uh, task to get past, to get through the threshold of all of that to uh, uh, to have the Supreme Court take it up. And I think that would be at this point, uh, most people uh, would construe would be highly unlikely. So it just needs to, uh, the court, the city council needs to make their decision one way or the other and move forward. And I think the fact that they've spent the last month uh, opting for these two week deferrals uh, mm-hmm. may have given them time behind, you know, but kind of for all of them to think it through and make their decision on how they want to vote. But it's uh, that the, the, the day is coming very soon within the month that they are going to be uh, having to make that decision. And, uh, and I, and I think we'll all look with interest to see what that is. Uh, Ryan, the person who actually put this forward, Meg Salyer is no longer there on the city council. Why delay this? Are they, is there a possibility they're just waiting till the time runs out and they can just do nothing about it? Is there a political reason for that? I, I don't see a political or a legal reason for delaying a decision here one way or the other. Uh, and so that's, that, that is, that, that's confounding, you know, you know, if, if they, if they want to move forward, um, you know, or, or if they want to just, you know, say that, you know, they're, they're ready to accept, uh, the 10th circuit's opinion, uh, which was overwhelmingly against them, um, and, and their position, I, it, the, the two week deferrals just don't make any sense from a political or a legal perspective. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.